0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Welcome wherever you're listening around the world, including the thousands of listeners we've got in America, Australia, Ireland and Germany. And our single listeners, our single solitary listeners in Guatemala, Guadeloupe and Ethiopia. Now we've talked before about the differences in lockdown around the world but in today's episode uh, we're going to take a look closer to home. What is the impact? What's the lockdown like? What are the politics of coronavirus in this disunited kingdom? Boris Johnson might be Prime Minister of the UK but on health at least he's leading England only with Nicola Sturgeon, Mark Drakeford and Arlene Foster doing their own thing in Scotland Wales and Northern Ireland, respectively. So, here to give an insight into what is happening in the four corners of the country, I'm delighted to be joined by four political journalists who really know what's going on in their patch. So, first up, we've got Kieran Andrews, Scottish political editor of the Times. Where in Scotland are you right now, Kieran?
2: I am in my house in sunny Teaport in North East Fife. And it is sunny, isn't it? It is sunny. It's quite chilly. There's a bit of a wind, but
1: it's sunny. It's nice. Although you're not allowed to go in sunbathe, are you, in Scotland, which we, which we, which we no, onto. and at
2: about uh, 10 degrees, it's uh, it's fully tap-saf <laughs> weather for um, everyone in Scotland.
1: Jennifer Williams, politics editor of the Manchester Evening News. Where are you?
3: Uh, I'm in my flat in Manchester and it is cloudy, so the sunbathing rule is a bit of a moot point anyway in Manchester at the moment. <laughs>
4: Sam McBride, political editor of The Newsletter. Where are you? I'm at my home in Belfast, up at the top of the garden in a little office here, looking out across the hills towards the west of the city. And it's very cloudy here, as it tends to be in Belfast, but it's it's, it's been fine weather over the lockdown, so we can't complain.
1: And finally, Will Hayward, political editor of Wales Online. Where are you in Wales?
5: I'm in sunny Cardiff, and annoyingly, it's one of the... Th- Two days a year, but it's not raining, and I'm not able to go on Sunday either. So uh,
2: it's very <laughs> frustrating.
1: And you've got a dog in the background. Is that your dog? That, that, wasn't no, right. sorry, I, that I was I my dog.
2: No, sorry, that was my dog. Just <laughs> got very <married>. sick. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's fine. We could all share the dog. We could share the dog. Uh, well, well, welcome along. Thank you uh, for joining us. I, I suppose, first of all, we should try and get to the bottom of what you can and can't do in each country from this week. Uh, given that England has moved furthest and sort of went first, and there's been the most attention on that, uh, Jen, let's start with you. What can you do this week, from Wednesday this week, that the rest of the panel can't?
3: OK, so I can uh, sunbathe. Uh, in the park, I can sit in the park, and I can meet one member of another household in the outdoors, but not in my garden. Uh, And there was some confusion about what exactly that rule meant, because it was sort of trailed in the Prime Minister's speech on Sunday, and then Dominic Robb went out and did the media round on the Monday morning and seemed to suggest that actually you could meet more than one person, which then meant that people started thinking, can I go and meet my parents? And the government very quickly came back on that and said, no, you can only meet one person. Uh, And at the press conference yesterday, Boris Johnson was really explicit. One person from one household can meet one person from another household outdoors. Um, So that's the rule. And there is also uh, some form of new rule around going back to work, Um, although there's been a lot of criticism of that. Uh, for uh, towards the government for uh, being vague around it but what the government essentially saying is if you can't work from home you're now being actively encouraged to go back to work but you should avoid public transport Uh, and those I think are the main changes
1: Hang on, you're forgetting the excitement that you can now play tennis with uh, someone else (laughs) and you can go to a garden centre. Yes. But you can't drive there with them. They have to arrive separately. You'll have to arrive separately, Uh,
3: yeah. And also at the press conference yesterday, somebody asked Boris Johnson, a member of the public asked Boris Johnson, what happens if you go to the park and you just bump into other members of your family? Is that okay?" And, uh, I mean, his answer was you could only meet one person from another household at once. But having said that, you know, you can't really stop yourself from randomly meeting people that you know as you. So
1: It feels like basically it's because the legislation they passed technically limits gatherings outside mm. to no more than two people. And so if they're going to start expanding that, then they need to, they'd have to change the legislation. So for now, it's only two people. But there's definitely more flexibility in England. Let's come to you next, Will, because Mark Drakeford's been very clear in Wales. We English are not welcome. We can drive anywhere we like in England, but we're not to cross the border. So what can you do in Wales right now?
5: Uh, So in Wales on Friday, Mark Drakeford announced some very minimal measures, which actually came into effect on Monday. So we can exercise multiple times a day, but we have to stay local. We can't drive anywhere to go and exercise. He also announced that garden centres can open if they maintain social distancing. So if you're lucky enough to have a garden, you can get as many geraniums as you like. Um, He also gave permission to councils to open libraries and tips. So you can do your garden, you can clear your garden, you can possibly read a book, but that's pretty much as much as they've expanded it. There was some confusion yesterday when he was actually asked, following the Dominic Raab interviews, if you could meet one person outside your household while exercising And he appeared to say, yes, you can. You've always been able to do that. And then late last night, that was rode back from. And we're told, actually, no, that that is not in fact the case. So that was uh, a very small change, managed to create quite a bit of confusion. But they have been fairly clear that uh, they're still pretty scared of that R rate and not much else is going to be changing for a while
1: i believe that uh, coronavirus confusion has also been devolved and that everyone is uh, managing <laughs> managed to make a mess of this. Uh,
3: I think I forgot actually a, a key change which relates to that, which is that now that we're allowed to go outside and ex- exercise as much as we want, we can also get in the car and drive somewhere to exercise, which is partly why Wales has immediately said you won't be coming over the border to exercise here so that half of Manchester doesn't end up back up Snowden. And also uh, the Lake Districts have also been pretty quick to say, please don't all come here at once. So that that's probably quite a significant change as well in England.
5: The uh, MP for Shrewsbury, he was expressing his frustration that he would not be able to drive through Wales to get to a beach, but would be able to drive to East Anglia. And that was a, a real bone of contention. Yeah, for him, exactly. Which, uh, uh, I, I imagine the people in Ceredigion and Pembrokeshire, were, who have almost no cases, were pretty glad that he wasn't able to come to their beach.
1: <laughs> he, they should take it as a compliment that he'd rather go to Wales than East Anglia. <laughs> right, Kieran, Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon made a big fuss at the weekend. She, was gonna, she said, stay alert. Boris Johnson's slogan was too complicated. She was going to stick with stay at home. While also announcing that people didn't have to necessarily stay at home.
2: Yeah, although the changes in Scotland have been very minimal. The only difference really, you've always been allowed to leave your home, it's just been to to go and exercise or go for essential journeys to the, you know, the supermarket for food or to work if you're a if you're a key worker. And what Nicola Sturgeon has announced is that you can go out and exercise more than once a day, but essentially exercise is deemed as only when you're moving. So no stopping at park benches, no, no standing <laughs> still to speak to people, no sunbathing, no sunbathing.
1: No musical no statues. No musical
2: statues. That that does not count as exercise. You could barely work up a sweat during musical statues. <laughs> um,
1: so Kim, you're not doing it properly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it really depends on the music yeah so the changes in scotland are very minimal i mean the law actually didn't prohibit people going out more than once a day anyway that was just the there was a, a bit of kind of guidance on top of that so practically there's not been any massive changes in scotland at all and we're, we're just waiting to see what, when, if anything, will start to release. The R number or the R rate in Scotland is is higher than in the rest of the uh, United Kingdom, certainly higher than in than England. And we're not entirely sure of the reason for that. It could be that Scotland is a bit behind everyone else in terms of when the virus uh, first, first appeared here. But yeah, things are just moving a bit more slowly in Scotland at the moment. What is the R rate in Scotland? Sorry to uh, interrupt. Very vague, anywhere between zero point seven and one. But Nicola Sturgeon's been saying in recent days that she thinks it's potentially closer to one. And there was a, a Scottish Government document uh, published last week that said the R rate was higher than in England. But it's been incredibly vague and it's one of the one of the issues that the you know, the Scottish political lobby or journalists have been trying to get a bit more detail from the First Minister from the Chief Medical Officer, but not a lot has been coming.
1: OK, just finally then to complete the full set, Sam, what's going on in
4: Northern Ireland? Our rules have always been broadly similar to those of England up until this point and really as I speak to you there is nothing I think which I'm able to do now or will be able to do later this week which I couldn't do last week. I'm not sure whether that's a good or a bad thing, I suppose it depends on one's perspective. Um, but there have been massive tensions within the power sharing executive here in Belfast all of the way through this. Um, those are slightly beneath the surface now but I think they, they're still just about visible. So we, we, we had for instance last week the DUP environment minister coming out and saying that his number one priority was to get garden centres reopened, but he is the environment minister. It's not going to happen unless Sinn Féin agree to it. And at the top of this, you you refer to Arlene Foster as the first minister. But while that title might imply that she is in charge, she is not in charge in the way that Mark Drakeford or Nicola Sturgeon are in charge. She shares a joint office with the deputy first minister. So unless Sinn Féin and the DUP agree, nothing will happen. And it's not just that these two parties are ideologically separated on the constitutional question about Irish unity or the the maintenance of the British Union. It's also a a chasm um, of left right politics of social politics. It, it, it's very difficult to get those two parties to agree on these issues.
1: And obviously, the one of the crucial differences between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK is there was some water between us. And so, is there when comparing what you can and can't do and R rates and death rates and case rates and all of that sort of thing. Are people in Northern Ireland more likely to look over the border to Ireland rather than across
4: to to England or Scotland or Wales? Largely, the answer to that depends on their political ideology. So if they're, if they're, <laughs> if they're, if they're nationalists, absolutely. If they're unionists, probably not. Um, it's not entirely as straightforward as that, but that's, that's generally the way. Kieran was saying there are our, our rate here. We were told at the end of last week was about somewhere between 0.8 and 0.9. Um, that hadn't changed in the course of a week. That's what we had been told the week before. We, we were slower to get it here. There is no question about that. We were also protected to a certain extent by the water, also by factors such as we are a more rural Situation here in, in Northern Ireland, we've less public transport, we have less population density, and when the lockdown came in across the whole UK, it was of course a national a national lockdown. We benefited from that disproportionately because there was just less of the virus here at that point. So we've been fortunate um, on that front, and the NHS here has been very comfortably dealing with this. I think it's fair to say. And the health minister at the outset of this year' instalment was talking about a a, a uh, really a plague of biblical proportions. He referred to it as he was saying this could mean fifteen people dead in Northern Ireland over the course of several months out of a population of 1.9 million. That's a pretty scary um, proposition. And up until the end of last, uh, up, up until Monday of, of this week, we had 438 people dead based on the daily statistics. It's actually higher than that. It's over 500 um, based on the the factors which were being registered after the event, but massively beneath what they were preparing for.
1: And actually, a few weeks ago, there was a sort of tw- Twitter thread that went viral about how uh, how much better Ireland was doing than the rest of the UK, but also comparing with Northern Ireland. Actually, now the death rate in Northern Ireland. Is about twenty three per hundred thousand, and in the Republic of Ireland, it's about thirty. So it does look, at least, you know, and I know there are lots of factors taken into account in this, but it does look like Northern Ireland is is doing better, certainly better than the rest of uh, the UK. Scotland, it's thirty four deaths per hundred thousand. Wales is thirty five, and England is currently fifty one. Um, but the retentions um, emerging, not just between nations, but even uh, within them. This is Boris Johnson uh, asked at uh, a press conference on Monday about what would happen if there were different levels of the outbreak in different parts of the same country.
5: You've got to respect uh, local uh, issues, local uh, flare-ups, local problems. And part of the solution uh, is going to be, as we go forward, we will be responding, um, John, with, with local responses so if there's a flare-up uh, in a particular part of the country uh, in, a, in, a, in a town or in a village uh, which we detect with our covid alert system then we will be we will be uh, firefighting uh, doing whack-a-mole uh, to, to deal with that issue as it arises so having a, a local uh, regional national uh, approach makes sense but it also makes sense to have a strong uh, uk approach as well
1: Jen, this is particularly acute, isn't it, in your part of the world, because the North West has been behind the curve, you know, particularly number of cases in London's come down much more quickly. There are now more, I think, cases in hospitals of the North West than there are in London. What's Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, say about all this?
3: Up until the last couple of weeks, he has been very much kind of stressing the need to be cooperative uh, and work with the government and respect the fact that during the response phase, this needs to be led uh, from the centre. And he he talks quite a lot about the fact that as former health secretary, he went through this with swine flu and there is a necessity for this to be done at a national level. And he, I mean, he is still talking about that, but I think... Certainly, when it became apparent that the government was thinking about dropping the stay at home message, he's become increasingly critical. Um, he's very much against the dropping the stay at home message for the reasons that you just outlined. And I think the other question for an area like uh, Greater Manchester, the North West, is that while, albeit maybe Scotland is vague about its R, but at least Nicola Sturgeon has. Provided some suggestion of what it might be. We don't know what the R is in Greater Manchester. We don't know what it is in the North West. And I think that has been fueling some concerns that by just uh, changing this message at a uniform level across England, misses out the regional variances between, say, London and somewhere like Liverpool or Manchester.
1: And to what extent, and this probably applies across everyone, but to what extent do you think politics are starting to play a part in this? Because, of course, Having a sort of political argument about the the Tory slogan is an opportunity to... Argue about something which is essentially not really about coronavirus and lives being at stake. It's about who's got the better slogan. Do you think party politics is seeping back into this a bit as well?
3: I think there's probably more of it than there was. I think Keir Starmer's clearly shifted in tone over the last week or so to start being probably more kind of aggressive in his criticism. And certainly PMQs last week, you uh, you know, he scored a number of hits on the prime minister and was pretty effective in doing that. Um, I think certainly in Greater Manchester, they would argue that they've been very careful not to be partisan during this. And there's, um, they've been sort of very delicately making sure that every week there is a, there's an MP's uh, call with Andy Burnham. And a third of our MPs here are Conservatives, so it's not like it's a completely Labour-dominated landscape. Um, so I think they've been careful to kind of steer clear of that. I think it would be fair to say that not not all of the politicians here think that the government has is wrong to be relaxing the rules because there's also confu- uh, also a, a, a lot of concern about the economy here and you know we know from previous downturns that our area and areas like this where you've got high levels of poverty and still recovering from the from the last crisis and the crisis before that and the crisis before that economically that we're likely to get hit very hard by that so i think that there is there's not necessarily everybody on exactly the same page here any more than everybody's on exactly the same page uh, in the Cabinet. But I think there's definitely a kind of, there's a general concern that this latest move is bearing in mind perhaps London's position more than it's bearing in mind the position in the northwest.
1: And what about Boris Johnson's idea of a sort of whack-a-mole, localised strategy? I mean, when he starts talking about different villages and different towns, I suddenly thought, could you you know can you put a cordon around a village and say like you're not allowed out uh you know in case you you spread it about do you think if there was a situation where Even if it was done regionally and London had a different set of rules to Greater Manchester or even the North West, do you think people would go along with that or would it create resentment? Where's the public mood, do you think?
3: We did a big poll across our company, which I think we got the results back about a week ago. And so we've got titles all over the UK. So it was quite interesting to look at the kind of regional variants of what people were saying. But actually, the vast majority of people across, certainly across uh, England and even more the case in Scotland, was that the government had been um, too late to introduce the lockdown, which would make you think that perhaps the public mood is slightly more on the side of caution than than Boris Johnson's messaging would imply at the moment. I don't think that we have seen the same degree of public... I won't say, quite say rule-breaking, but we haven't seen our parks kind of full of people in the way some of the pictures have shown uh, in parts of London at the weekend I think there is a general sense of caution here even although have on the flip side of that I think people are starting to kind of go out and about more and you can see that on the road you can see that there's more cars on the road you can see that people are going out and kind of sitting out i've noticed people have started going and sitting outside bars while they're closed and drinking almost kind of like trying to will, will them to reopen <laughs> um, <laughs> but i do think that i do think that there is a level of caution among the public so how that would work I mean a lot of it is going to depend on public transport isn't it that is really unclear at the moment how public transport is going to work in England I don't know what the picture is in Scotland Wales and Northern Ireland but nobody really seems to know and also no one knows what he means when he says if there's a local flare-up we will be really quick to put the brakes on I think is the phrase we don't know what that means does that mean lockdown what what does it what does it mean we don't know
1: Kieran I was going to ask you if Nicola Sturgeon was playing politics but that's a sort of question to which the answer is always yes (laughs) Um, but to what extent is sort of her politics informing the way that she's been behaving because one of certainly from a sort of Westminster perspective the best way to find out what Boris Johnson's going to announce later is to listen to what Nicola Sturgeon's saying now because she's sort of been in the COBA meeting and is just going to leak all the details. She's the you know journalist friend in that respect. Is politics playing a part in that in Scotland?
2: Um, it is, although I I think the the characterisation of Nicola Sturgeon leaking things early is maybe a, a little bit harsh. I mean, she has her daily press conference at half past twelve each day, which means that just by its very nature, it's taking place. Um, a, a few hours before the Downing Street press conference. And I think we would all be fairly affronted if if all the journalists were to uh, set up and ask Nicola Sturgeon questions and she said, sorry, I can't give you the answer to any of these because Boris Johnson hasn't spoken yet. And th- 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 there's, always, there's always an amount of playing politics. I think what you're seeing, though, is it's not coming directly from Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. You you see it a lot more from a little bit further down the food chain in the SNP. And uh, you know, there's a, a lot of people um, hitting out at the UK government's strategy, fairly blissfully ignorant, um, willingly or otherwise, that the Scottish government has followed almost to the letter the exact same strategy up here. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's frustration with Boris Johnson and the UK government has almost entirely been on messaging. And, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's very, very good at, you know, looking like a, a confident, in-control figure in a way that Boris Johnson and other members of the Cabinet don't always inspire that same confidence. You know, in terms of public opinion, there's a YouGov poll carried out in Scotland pretty recently that had 74% of Scots trusting Nicola Sturgeon and only forty. I think, trusting Boris Johnson's judgments on tackling COVID-19, which is astounding given their judgments have been the same, but it just shows how you present yourself (laughs) makes a difference. Absolutely. Now, Will,
1: in Cardiff, Mark Drakeford, it has to be said, probably hadn't had much cut through, certainly outside Wales before all of this. Do you think he's sort of establishing himself a bit more as first leader as, as a result of the crisis?
5: Yeah, I mean, I mean, he hasn't necessarily cut through that much in Wales as well um, <laughs> before, before this. Um, I, I think Drakeford's in a tricky position because um, he doesn't want to be to be seen to be too critical of um, Westminster, which might seem strange for a Labour leader. But part of that is because um, he's disposed to work together. That's kind of his natural inclination on this. He thinks that's the best way to go forward. He also um, obviously has to work with them, um, especially with um, like joint procurement. As he's um, not the leader of a Welsh nationalist party, he also doesn't want to really feed into the Plaid Cymru narrative that Wales is getting shafted by England. So he's actually in quite a, a tricky position there. But he's had there's been some times when he perhaps could have made political capital out of um, incidents that have happened, but has opted not to. So there was the um, Roach pharmaceutical deal for 5,000 tests that Wales had arranged. And it's since come out that England essentially commandeered that. Um, and those tests were all going to be done centrally and then kind of doled out. And Wales was going to get a cut of that, Proceeded, Wales abandoning its 9000 test target. But there's also been things like um, England set up a NHS England set up a, a mobile testing centre in the Cardiff City Stadium with Deloitte, which was then taken over by Public Health Wales, but initially wasn't able to feed into the Welsh NHS systems. So he's done very well, Drakeford, in that when he does a press conference, he does really try to explain what they're talking about obviously is still a politician but he does like to try and take people along with him and I think a lot of people have warmed to that especially as a contrast to the um some of the uh, perceptions of some of the Westminster briefings but I think in Wales there's that whole lens of also Plaid Cymru as well so a lot of people do see things um from a, a nationalist standpoint so he's kind of in the middle in lots of ways, but I think he's, he's acquitted himself fairly, fairly well. And I mean, uh, uh, more people now know who he is, which I suppose can only be a good thing.
2: Well, sorry, can I jump in? Just how does it work on a practical level? Or what are the difficulties in Wales in terms of getting out separate messages? I'm just thinking in Scotland, obviously, as well as um, the kind of indigenous titles, as it were, we've got a lot of Scottish editions of UK papers is there is there an issue with getting the public health differing public health messages out in Wales?
5: yeah I think so I mean obviously I'd like everyone just to come and read Wales online but um, <laughs> I think yeah. I mean none of the uh, none of the national titles will um, uh, do have they don't have Welsh editions um, and obviously there's a North Wales media with pan Wales but our titles initially started in South Wales so um, you've got the um, uh, daily post in North Wales. But yeah, it, it definitely is a an issue in terms of getting that because a lot of people, especially along the border, um, it's it's a very populated border, the Welsh border, and it, it's not as kind of clearly defined. So I think uh, there is definitely a, a problem with getting that message out to all parts of Wales, because as you say, there's not um,
3: uh, a Welsh Times, there's not a, a Welsh Guardian. There's, there's a kind of similar tension actually in the Northwest as well in the you know, if you look, if you look at Andy Burnham's position, in fact, it's a good example of it. In that he said at the weekend he wanted to stick with stay at home, but he wouldn't go quite as far as saying that Greater Manchester's message was going to be stay at home. He wouldn't quite go there. And I suppose Greater Manchester is in this strange position where it does have devolution, including over its health service, up to a point. But if Greater Manchester was to diverge from London in its messaging, that would be something of, you know, that would be an even bigger deal than if Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland were to do that. And so far they haven't quite gone there. But if you talk to people working in um, public sector communications here, They're actually at a loss to know in many cases how to communicate the government's new message because at local level the organisations don't necessarily agree with it. So how do you go about saying to people still be cautious but without directly contradicting the government's new message?
1: We had this strange situation the other day where uh, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, came out and announced that he was going to start lobbying the government to tell people to wear masks on the when they're on public transport, because it wasn't technically, I don't think, something within his purview to make that sort of decision. But even though he is technically responsible for public transport, so, yeah, it's a similar issue.
5: And one dra- one problem Drakeford has, well, the Welsh government has, for example, is the complexity of the devolution set up here. So Wales was found to have, I think it's only like 3 or 6% of the prison population, but had 25% of prison COVID cases, Um, But the prisons, um, with the exception of one prison, which is private, um, are run by Westminster. But healthcare in prisons is devolved. So it was a uh, it's very hard to kind of put these messages out when actually a lot of the people who are actively interested in this don't know all the minutiae of it. So getting that out to the public of what they're actually responsible for is, I think, a real challenge.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
4: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Sam, just thinking about the sort of the devolution settlement in Northern Ireland, obviously it was only in January, just as the first tales of coronavirus were, were starting to emerge, that the Stormont Assembly was even back and operational, having been suspended for, what, three years? How is it? coped with I mean it's, it's one thing getting you know uh, an assembly back on its feet and operational never mind doing it in the middle of a, of a massive health crisis
4: over the last three years we've had no government of any sort we've had civil servants running Northern Ireland in a really unprecedented situation for the UK it has never happened anywhere before where you have got civil servants with no democratic oversight no democratic control no democratic accountability um, no direction they are completely lords and masters of what happens and that that is there because there is simply no alternative to it. So if that had been the situation now, what on earth would have happened? Would we have had a a really move towards emergency direct rule from London? That would have created difficulties because we know that even having a devolved situation here, nationalism has been very distrustful of Boris Johnson. They they do not trust Tories in general. They specifically do not trust Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. And so therefore, even without them having their hands directly on the levers of of resentment at some of the um, London decisions which are impacting here, if that had been the case, it could have been really, I think, very significantly damaging to the union in Northern Ireland. But I think that just just as what Will is saying there about Wales, but to a far, far greater extent, the constitutional implications of this pandemic are central to how a lot of politicians here are approaching it. And so we've had Mary Lou Macdonald, the um, leader of Sinn Féin, saying that she thinks this will be a far greater catalyst for Irish unity than Brexit even, Um, and is quite straightforward about saying that. We have had unionists saying that they think this demonstrates the power and the efficacy of the union, basically because you've got the clout of central government in terms of buying PPE, in terms of the, uh, the, the spending of the treasury. And I think to many um, unionists, they look at this and think, well, hang on a minute, if it wasn't for London, if this was Northern Ireland, even a uh, single entity on the island of Ireland, um, would we be in a situation where we could furlough people in this way? Now, clearly in the uh, South, there, there is a similar situation where they, they have furloughed workers, they are propping up their economy in a similar way. But that is that is central to what is happening here. And so you've had all of these disputes. And so that overlays everything which happens in terms of dealing with this as a as a healthcare issue. So
1: before we wind up, I just want to sort of wind it out to the broader question you've touched on a bit there, Sam, as to what impact all of this is having on the union. Twelve months ago, we would have been having a conversation about, you know, the impact of Brexit on uh, the Union, about how that apparently was gonna uh, bring the union crashing down. Do you think that coronavirus is having that impact are people sort of more aware of devolution are people thinking
4: about northern ireland's place in this thing called the union again They certainly are, Um, and I think that across the entire UK, this reveals the strengths and the weaknesses of the the sort of 21st century constitutional settlement that we have in the UK. Um, Just as Will was saying about Wales there, the confusion around who is actually in control of something like healthcare and prisons, where it's it's a split responsibility. We've got this confusing picture across the UK, and it's pretty much an inevitable consequence of devolution because it's not clear where power ultimately lies in many of these cases. There has never been a test, certainly in a crisis of magnitude of who is actually in control and who can do what in certain situations. We are in some cases just making it up as we go along and that is inevitable because we haven't been here before. And just as, a, as an example of this, when Boris Johnson announced um, what was it, seven weeks ago in that you know very sombre televised speech to the nation that we were going into lockdown, I was sitting at home on my sofa watching this like everybody else and we got to the end of it. And even though it's my job to understand the constitutional situation who is in charge of what, where um, whether this impacts Northern Ireland or whether this is Stormont, I wasn't clear at the end of it whether this included Northern Ireland because the BBC cut immediately from Boris Johnson. They went to Nicola Sturgeon saying, well, I'm going to do this also in, in Scotland. They went to Mark Drakeford who said, I'm going to do this in Wales. So I thought, right, so it's it's clearly a devolved matter. But there was nobody from Northern Ireland. And I phoned somebody very senior in Stormont and said, what's happening here? They didn't know. They said, I, I think so, but I don't know. And so what would once have been a centralised, simple um, central government decision becomes this confusing question. That is the inevitable, I think, and unavoidable consequence of devolution.
1: I suppose in the past when we've had this sort of threat to national safety, it's been uh, a question of terrorism, uh, most of which is still reserved. Uh, you know, national security is reserved to Westminster. So we've been used to the prime minister standing on the steps of number 10 and reacting to uh, a terror attack, whether that was in London or in Edinburgh or wherever it might be. But, Kieran, do you think, because particularly members of the SNP and particularly members of the SNP on Twitter uh, never see anything other than through the prism of independence what what impact is all this having on that independence debate
2: well it's there, there's two schools of thought in Scotland one is that the the crisis is showing the the broad shoulders the value of the UK you know the the UK government the treasury has financed the furlough scheme which has made it possible in practice to you know to go into lockdown in Scotland and that you know the, there's a there have been A lot of commentators saying, well, that just shows that, you know, independence is is dead for now and everyone will come out of this one big happy United Kingdom. That doesn't take into account the fact that the response and the way we exit lockdown and the, you know, the the new country that emerges from it in some ways, I suppose, will be just as important if... uh, you know, if you if you have a UK government, no, Boris Johnson doesn't like saying the A word. But if you have severe spending cuts or brought into force across across Britain, then of course you'll see a spike in support for uh, Scottish independence. You can already see the SNP are starting to gripe about the furlough scheme, or starting to needle in in you know in terms of how long it goes on for, and you can see how they will essentially say, we've been betrayed, the furlough scheme was great, but the UK government cut it off before we were ready, they don't care about us. Joanna Cherry, who has been critical of Nicola Sturgeon, is telling the SNP they need to have a new plan, need to use the, the crisis to develop a new plan for independence. And really, I think the case will be made on next year's Holyrood election, presuming it goes ahead as planned, then if Nicola Sturgeon is still popular in the polls and the SNP go on to win a majority, independence will be right back on the table. Um, The only thing the SNP might need to look out for is a new party, the Independence for Scotland party, which was registered last month and obviously thinks that the SNP is a bit soft on on independence.
1: (laughs) assuming the hollywood elections go ahead next year we all the local elections and elections for those regional mayors uh, which are supposed to go ahead this year but also happen next year and that could all become a uh, a referendum on how that's been handled in different parts of the country just before i let you go i started off by asking you what you can and can't do uh, right now this week uh, let's just finish by asking you what you're most looking forward to being able to do as and when it is allowed under the varying rules laid down by uh, different jurisdictions. Let's start with you, Jen. What are you most looking forward to doing?
3: Well, actually, um, <laughs> having poured cold water on uh, on on the things that we're now allowed to do. I'm actually looking forward to being able to go and sunbathe in the park if we ever get any more sunshine uh, in uh, in Manchester. And also just going and uh, eventually going and sitting around a mate's house and having a glass of wine. I, I'm not sure that I'll be in any mad rush to, you know, run back into Manchester City Centre, which is uh, going to be probably... Uh, quite a widespread sentiment which is going to cause some consternation here in terms of how the economy is going to function but for me just going and sitting in my mate's back garden having a glass of wine and a barbecue that's kind of all i really want to do
1: what about you Kira? what are you looking forward to
2: i cannot wait to be able to ditch zoom drinks and have (laughs) an actual pint in the pub with some mates Uh, i've also i know this sounds slightly soppy i'd also quite like to give my mum a hug oh
1: that's a very nice that you see you forgot to say that i did that's yeah a very hopefully nice she's not listening <laughs> <laughs> what about you will what are you most looking forward to
5: um well i mean i i feel like i should say the family thing but my family are all in england so they could drive to the border and exercise on the border and i could like look across but um to, I, I sound very basic but i've realized how much i've missed sport like i'd love to have a have a test match on right now and just be um listening to it probably doing exactly the same as i am now i'm i'm the
3: same thing in reverse my mum's in north wales so i've been sort of thinking about kind of driving down the m56 and sort of meeting her on the border of wales and sort of shouting above the traffic to say hi don't don't come in they get really yeah i know Uh, know.
4: (laughs) finally sam what are you most looking forward to doing as and when you're allowed to I've got two young children, and I think just le- letting them see their grandparents again—they've um, been remarkable through this. It's—it's been—it's been a real lark to them. It's been a great adventure. They're not remotely concerned about it, um, but their their grandparents view it differently. Um, and I think also just get, getting to do something normal, like play a game of five-a-side football or um, see friends, see family. Yeah, all those basic elements of life. I thought for a minute you were going to say you've got two
1: small children and you're looking forward to getting away from them. But you gave a much nicer. <laughs> you gave a much nicer answer. Maybe I'll say that um, next uh, week. <laughs> 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 I, well. <laughs> And also, it suddenly occurred to me that, um, in particular, Jen and Kieran, I only ever really get to see you at party conferences, and we don't even know if they're going to happen uh, this year. A load of political people being penned into warm, um, fusty rooms and bars doesn't feel very coronavirus 2020. That's unhealthy so... at the
2: best of times, isn't
1: it? Yeah. No, exactly.
3: I know. <laughs> in Manchester the, uh, the the former Gmax which is where they usually have party conference is currently a Nightingale so uh, <laughs> I don't really know how a party conference would work in Manchester anyway.
1: I suppose at least if they've got all the beds on hand. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, yeah, they could triage (laughs) people straight Uh, out. Well, listen, thank you so much uh, for that. It was uh, fascinating. I'm glad that, on the whole, the technology uh, held up. Uh, My thanks to Kieran, to Jen, to Sam and to Will uh, for bringing us the picture from across uh, the country. Uh, If you can, uh, when you listen to this, if you can join this lockdown, please do support uh, local as well as national journalism. These are the good guys that you should be uh, following during all of this. Uh, Please do subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen, and you can subscribe to the daily uh, Red Box email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.